If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride. And we have live in studio tonight Robert Mamana and Valerie Mahaffey, both of whom are appearing in Casa Valentina at the Pasadena Playhouse through April 10th. Steve and I saw it, we loved it, and we'll tell you why later. We will. Um, you know, there's so much going on in the country right now, and especially state by state. We're talking North Carolina. We're talking Mississippi. We're talking Georgia. And tonight we're talking Arkansas. Oh, the South. It's risen which again. Last week, the Attorney General of Arkansas decided he was going to fight the cities like Fayetteville that had passed pro-equality legislation, anti-discriminatory legislation, and Abby Dees will talk about that tonight. That Abby. Also tonight, Hunter Lee Hughes, who's the writer, director, producer, and one of the actors in the new film Guys Reading Poems, the tagline for which is, Seven Guys, Seven Skills, An Underground Society, An Unthinkable Transgression. Oh my. And he's bringing a guest, a very special guest. Yes, he is. Rex Lee here with us. I just watched Entourage the movie. I'm so excited he's here. You know, he's married to Greg Luganis now in the film. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Mm. And I watched his other show on Freeform. Well, that's why Freeform. That name is really annoying me. You are so up to speed. You frighten me. We have Daniel Francesi next week, who's also on a Freeform show. <laughs> it's so just it's a the new go to gay place, I Perfect. guess. Perfect. First, though, let's have the national and international news from our friends at This Way Out. I'm Carol Myers. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 2nd, 2016. Don't fly a rainbow flag in Saudi Arabia if you value your life. Legal authorities in that country are pushing prosecutors to enforce the death penalty for same-gender sex and for anyone who comes out or otherwise promotes LGBT rights even just online. Saudi judicial officials claim that the growth of the Internet in the predominantly Muslim nation is causing people to become increasingly bold in public about their abnormal behaviors. Under the nation's legal system, charges of gay sex are often indistinguishable from rape or pedophilia. Current penalties range from whipping, fines, and prison sentences to even execution for repeat offenders. Getting back to that rainbow flag warning... It was widely reported that the Saudi Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice took a doctor into custody this week in the port city of Jeddah after a large LGBT pride flag was spotted fluttering on a 10-foot pole in front of his house. 
He told the religious police that he and his kids were shopping online and that the colorful banner had simply caught the fancy of one of his children. He said he bought the flag not knowing what it represented. It was, of course, taken down, and the unnamed doctor was released on bail. It could have been much worse. According to the Jeddah Daily, a cause, dozens of cases have been filed against gay men in the city during the past six months for obscene behavior, along with a major crackdown on what the newspaper calls cross-dressers. A source inside Saudi Arabia, who requested anonymity because of safety concerns, told the Washington Blade that the threat of the death penalty against anyone who comes out online underscores the horrific reality of the situation in the country. The Internet is the only safe haven to LGBT individuals in the Middle East, he said. If this is taken from us, we won't have anywhere else to go. In happier news for sexual minorities, same-gender couples began legally marrying on April 1st in Greenland. The world's biggest island, most of which is covered by the largest permanent ice sheet outside of Antarctica, is an autonomous country within the Kingdom of Denmark. Greenland's parliament, representing a population of about 57,000, unanimously approved the marriage equality bill late last year. It received official royal assent in early February. The legislation brings the Nordic nation's marriage laws in line with its Danish cousins. A joint adoptions clause takes effect on July 1st. The law also allows church weddings. Greenland's bishop, Sophie Peterson, the country's top religious figure, worked closely with the government to ensure that the law allowed same-gender couples to marry in churches and other religious buildings. Nevi Olsen, the government minister for the church, told reporters that to have the opportunity to enter into marriage means a lot to many couples regardless of the gender of one's partner. Meanwhile, a U.S. federal judge has overturned the last remaining state ban on gays and lesbians adopting children. District Court Judge Daniel P. Jordan III ruled this week that Mississippi's ban violated the U.S. Supreme Court's June 2015 marriage equality ruling that included the rights and responsibilities intertwined with marriage. He granted a preliminary injunction against the state's Department of Human Services in a case filed late last year. The plaintiffs were four same-gender couples seeking to adopt through the state's foster care system or through private agencies, joined by the Campaign for Southern Equality and the Family Equality Council. The name of the plaintiff's attorney may sound familiar, Roberta Kaplan. She won the famous Windsor decision before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 that struck down the odious Federal Defense of Marriage Act and paved the way for last year's high court marriage equality decision. Kaplan described her clients as, beyond ecstatic. That federal court adoptions ruling came during the same week that the Republican-dominated Mississippi state legislature prepared to send a bill to Governor Phil Bryant that critics call the most sweeping anti-LGBT legislation in the country. It would allow businesses, individuals, nonprofits, and even government employees to discriminate against LGBT people without penalty by citing sincerely held religious or moral beliefs. It includes legal protections for those opposed to recognizing the self-defined identity of transgender people. The draconian measure also protects people who refuse, for reasons of faith, to provide counseling services, foster care, and adoption services, possibly including agencies receiving state funding. Mississippi lawmakers are expected to approve the bill as soon as the House and Senate versions are reconciled. Governor Bryant has not said if he would sign or veto it but he's made supportive comments in the past about the bill's intent. After a groundswell of opposition from major companies in the state and around the country, Georgia's Republican Governor Nathan Deal vetoed a so-called religious freedom bill last week, 
while North Carolina's GOP governor, Pat McRory, signed a bill into law requiring transgender students to use the bathrooms, locker rooms, and other gender-segregated campus facilities corresponding to their birth gender. It's already prompted a growing number of social media selfies taken by bearded trans men in women's restrooms, pointing out the irony of the no-men-in-women's bathroom mantra of the transphobic forces behind the bill. Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, vetoed Virginia's version of a so-called religious freedom bill this week. It was passed by the Republican-dominated state legislature and would have made it illegal for the state to punish any religious individual or group that refused to provide services for the legal wedding of a lesbian or gay couple. McAuliffe had warned lawmakers that he would veto the bill if it reached his desk. He called it nothing more than an attempt to stigmatize. Victoria Cobb of the Family Foundation of Virginia complained that it is unfortunate that Governor McAuliffe is so willing to discriminate against people of faith who simply disagree with the secular left's sexual dogma. McAuliffe argued that the proposal would damage Virginia's reputation for common-sense pro-business government. We need only look at the damage these types of laws are doing in other states to understand the harm this bill would bring to our commonwealth and its economy. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 2nd, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michael Lebeau. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org or on iTunes or on SoundCloud or on Stitcher. And I am so excited because I have sitting right in front of me, live in studio, Robert Mamana, who you may have seen in the 20th Century Way at the Boston Court Theater a few years ago, and Valerie Mahaffey, on whom I have had a crush ever since Northern Exposure. And they are currently appearing in Casa Valentina at the Pasadena Playhouse through April 10th, so you only have one week left to go see it. So welcome, you two. Thank you. you. Now, Casa Valentina is about a, a hotel, a boarding house, a resort, resort, a resort in the Catskills in 1962 that caters to heterosexual men who cross-dress. Yes. Not to pretend I find a point on it. Um, Now, how much exposure had you two had to the world of cross-dressing before you did this play? Um, For me, sort of Eddie Izzard. Yes, good point. That's about it. And I've had to dress my husband for an audition one time, and he got the part, but that was about it, really. Andy Robert? Oh, no, zero. I mean, other than uh, did the musical Sugar once, mm-hmm. and so I had to to dress in that. And it, but it was a comedy. Thing. Yeah, that's was, a whole different thing. It was thing. an entirely different thing, yeah. So I, I had no experience, and this was all uh, very eye-opening. Well, because the way this story goes, there's a, a, a man who's very new to this world of cross-dressing, and, and the other men in the resort sort of take him under their wing and show him the ropes. Um, but I was wondering, as, as the play, as you were introduced to the characters, how much of an input did the men have on that female version of the character? Because within the play, it stated that the ideal is to look like you just left the bridge table, but say, now your character, Robert Valentino, right. looks like Gina Lola Brigida just left the bridge table. That's very nice of you to say that. Nice. <laughs> and there's another character that looks like, you know, Barbie's friend Midge just left the, you know. Yes. They do, you don't all look alike. Correct. At all. So how much input did you have into how your 
female persona was going to look? Well, we, our designers really did did most of that. Um, Kate, the costume designer, and Rick, who put together the makeup and the and the hair. Um, and I'm I, I imagine they chatted with our director David about what they wanted, but I think they were taking what we have naturally. And then going, with, I mean, which is why I don't have necessarily a blonde wig, mm. you know, or, or because I'm so dark that it mm. just wouldn't, it wouldn't look good. So I think Rick, once he knew who was playing, you know, which roles he designed for them. And, and was there high heel boot camp? Oh. oh. Was there ever. Well, you can, you can answer it, but these Oh, no, boys, I want your opinion on oh, watching it. Well, it was sad for me because I could, you know, the, at first I thought, well, they're being such babies, these boys, because they, <laughs> they were complaining and, and Larry's shoes got shorter and shorter yeah. and he's now walking around in sandals and I'm yeah. like, and, I'm kind of like and, and Larry's Larry Pressman he yeah. gives yes, such excellent oh, dowager aunt isn't he so wonderful he's hilarious and he's John just, found a place to take his shoes entirely off, off. because he's a, a, yes. a wily old veteran Robert will take his off backstage I but, have to but yeah they're so yeah. hard it, I, it really is yeah. I don't know how women do it <laughs> I, I, well, how, did you gain a lot of sympathy for what women go through every day we're, we're asked that I, I had always had sympathy you know for what women uh, put themselves through. I don't mean sympathy, admiration. Yeah, well, empathy, I think, would probably be, you know, w- what I've gained the most of. But it's it's really hard. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. You know, looking good in heels is, <laughs> is yeah. t- difficult Well, and, and, and terrifying because, you know, you're up there dancing on stage and, you know, the the idea of, you know, slipping and, and breaking your neck at any point is, is is always in the forefront of my mind. Well, and I know after the first time I ever wore heels, now if a woman says my feet are tired, I listen. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Because she just doesn't mean tired. She means I'm being punished. Yeah, and it's not it's just your true, feet. Yeah. yeah, It's your backs of your knees. Right. And it's your behind and it's your right. lower back. I wonder if our anatomies, though, are truly like we're more capable just because I don't know. I don't know either. Well, let's just Lower say it. Lower gravity. Yeah. Well, women are just I mean, flat out women, tougher. But, I mean, yeah. you just are. <laughs> That's just it. We just have to accept that. Yeah, we, it okay. is. Women right, are just time. tougher. Well, now, you two I'll play a married that. couple. Yes. And Valerie is uh, plays Rita, who is in that uh, task of the shoulder for everyone to cry on. And I was wondering, um, the character appears so strong. You know, she's not just a reaction, but she totally fails the Alison Bechdel test because, of course— she doesn't talk about anything but the men. Her whole life is seen through the prism of the men. And how how did you deal with that? How did, how did you say, okay, I'm not going to let her just be the girl surrounded by men on the stage? Well, what was that thing you compared it to? I didn't even understand that. Oh, Alice the Big Del test? Yes. Oh, that's how you – it's uh, – if you have two women talking to each other and they don't talk about men, then oh. you can truly say that is a strong female character because oh. – Inevitably, because the one time you are talking to another woman on the stage, it is, of course, about a man. It's like that's right, that's right. a test. And yet the character of Rita appears very strong and very definite and right. very clearly defined. And I just wondered how you approach that without being overwhelmed by, you know, being pretty much the only female in the play. Or what do they call it? GG? GG. Genetic, genetic girl. girl. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> is that a real term or did they make that up I for the play? I think it must be real. Uh, yeah, I, I no think idea. I bet Harvey Firestein. Research that, but um, that never seemed a a problem to me. I'm I'm interested <coughs> that you say that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think she's just a very um, loving character and loves these non genetic girls and loves her husband very much. And maybe 
as she runs a wig shop in Manhattan, maybe, I don't know, maybe she's not around a lot of women. I, I, maybe I would not fail that test <laughs> because I was telling you and some other people that I'm, I'm not a terribly good woman myself in some ways. Like I was in a few book clubs mm-hmm. and there would be a book assignment and I would be the only one who had read it. <laughs> the other women would be drinking wine and talking about men. Well, that's what a book club is, isn't it? What, just talking about men? No, drinking. Drinking? Yes. <laughs> well, apparently. It's all about and white wine. Th- it's, uh, as my husband called it, the Snicky Snack Club. <laughs> Are you going to Snicky Snack Club? I said, I guess so. Fine. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> well, now, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the characters we meet as men, and then we watch them transform into women. Some people arrive in fully in their woman persona. I really don't know the vocabulary for this discussion. So None of us do. Perfect. We're all so confused. Perfect. Okay, great. But You can uh, make mistakes. But there's but there's a lot of um, tone shift. It's like even when the men are in full woman persona, mm-hmm. the guy part comes out from time to time. And I wonder, did the actors make those decisions or was the director fine-tuning you all to make sure there wasn't too much going on at once or um, well didn't we have the visitors that really clued us in well yeah I mean when we were first you know uh, finding these characters we were all a little bit confused as to you know do they dress as women and and attempt to pass as women but use their male voices and we were we all we, we couldn't figure it out to be quite you know, quite candid. And we had a, a couple guests come that this is something that they do. And, um, and, and we asked them and they said, well, we don't really change our voices, to be quite honest with you. Sometimes we'll lighten our voices. But, um, but changing the register uh, is, isn't, part, isn't part of it. And it's only when we're out in public ordering food at a restaurant, for instance, we might, may lighten our voice a little bit. And they try to stay quiet. And, is what they told us. And, yeah. Oh, well, these these guys at least, yeah, these don't, guys just try not just, to talk a lot. Yeah, which I found interesting. Now, obviously, you can't do that in a play. Yeah. It would be a you know a very difficult play for audiences <laughs> to enjoy just sitting there. Um, but we decided early on that we would use our male voices because that was what, and and that is also what they did on on Broadway as well. Um, I don't know when they that. when they did the show. So I'm going to assume there's still a lot of transvestites in the world, but these days we sort of. Pass over that and say transsexual, which is a totally different thing. You're right. Yeah. And there are a lot, a lot more than I had imagined. How many did they say? Oh, Just... I don't know. They, they had some statistics that yeah. were, were rather astounding, actually. Yeah. And, and of those millions, um, 90% are heterosexual right. cross-dressers and right. not transsexuals and not... And it's not drag either. I mean, drag is a whole different thing. Yeah, drag is a theatrical. There's no camp to it. No, no. no, Right. Right. They're trying. One of my favorite photographs in a book that Mm -hmm. is the photographs that some um, antique dealers in Manhattan found and realized they were men, and then gave them to Harvey Firestein to. See, and then he wrote this play. And he wrote it just off of photographs. He off didn't the actually... photographs. Well, well then he started research, researching. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he didn't meet the, the person behind that. What was it, Casa Susana or something? Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I guess no, not. He no, that person, well, yeah, and that person disappeared, I think, shortly Cuba after. Cuba or something? Shortly after uh, the character that Rita's based on passed away. Oh. This character that George is based on, mm-hmm. his name is Tito, he um, dressed as a woman and stayed dressed as a woman. And, and honestly... So far as we know, it was never heard from again. Wow. Which is fascinating and that mysterious. Is. But the photograph that is my favorite mm-hmm. is of a, 
from the back Mm -hmm. in a housecoat and slippers Mm -hmm. and the hair kind of long and maybe the gray showing of somebody just watering the flowers. Mm -hmm. In a house dress. In a house house coat, yeah. Yeah, house coat. Ishmada. Ashmada, exactly. Now, this, the Pasadena Playhouse has a subscribership that we could describe as mature and somewhat <laughs> conservative. How is this show going over with them? As far as I can tell, they're <coughs> loving it. I mean, our audiences I, have been amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. You have talkbacks, right? We do. Yes, have talk we do. Backs. And and you have some of the older subscribers stick around. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. what's the weirdest thing they've asked you? Oh. They don't. They don't ask anything that's that's oh. you know that's odd. But they are incredibly interested mm-hmm. in what's going on, you know, in the minds of these characters mm-hmm. and and what they mean mm-hmm. when they say this or that and why they act this way. And they're really, really uh, paying attention. Oh, no doubt. And and it's a very funny play. I mean, I, I you know I would be remiss if I didn't say that audiences. You know, that I think what's so great about the show is that they laugh for a majority of it. And then there's and then a lot of heart turns yeah. to at the end, you know, and <laughs> they, yeah, it say. is hilarious though. They're because they're yeah. and they're not laughing at these characters. That's no, one no, thing no, that's no. really no. important. Harvey Feinstein did not write a play that you laugh at these characters. No. No, you, you, they, the characters laugh at themselves in, right? at times, but they, yeah. but yeah, it's it is it is a it is really it's a, a I think it's quite a beautiful, um, quite a beautiful piece. Well, and in the program, both Sheldon Epps, the artistic director of Pasadena, and David Lee, your director, when they first saw it in New York, they both thought, that's fascinating. Right. And, and I felt the same way. I thought, I'd never thought about that. Because you thought you knew what it was going to be, didn't well, you? Well, I, I didn't really know, but I just, I don't know that much about transvestism. Even though we're sitting here doing this gay show, it just it doesn't really come out because it is primarily heterosexual men. Right. And I just thought it was so interesting. I mean, do you, do you feel like you're experts on the subject now? Or do, are you, uh, do you feel like you barely scratched the surface? Well, scratched at most. Scratched, yeah. although uh, I certainly no more than when I started, mm-hmm. but don't have any answers. You know what I mean? It's like, I still don't get it. <laughs> but not in a mean way. Yeah. I just don't yeah. exactly understand it. What do you hope the audiences take away from this show? Hmm. Uh, dead air. Let's see. No, <laughs> I, I, don't, um, I don't know what to say. Um, just um, humanity and that, the, that there are special groups of people that you might know nothing about, but they're... They're, I don't know, Robert, well, I think, help me. I, I, I think that, and, and I think they are taking this away. I think they go in to have a great time and possibly learn something, and I think both of those things are happening every night. Mm-hmm. You know, they're having a great time. You can, you know, the, the laughter that just, you know, fills the theater, and afterwards people stop me on the street and they want to talk about the play. And I had friends go, and they, they talked about the play for days, and, and, mm-hmm. and he said, well, we just don't do that with movies, and that's what is mm-hmm. great about this show. Yeah. Well, have you had anybody come backstage with a you've changed my life revelation or anything like that? I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily happened, but I can... But, but I, lit up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, people lit are, up people and are yeah. definitely crying. definitely jazzed about yeah. the show. You know? Um, yeah. And have whatever. any of the actors had the Tootsie moment where you go... Being a woman has made me a better man. <laughs> well, I don't know. We, we all started as grumpy men to begin with, so I'm hoping that it's... Are it's you a little less up. grumpy? I think so, yeah. I think so. And do you, do you have a favorite part of the show that you just can't wait to do every night because you love it so much? 
<laughs> Valerie will think about that. But she's for a enjoying it in her I, head. I, I love I, the last scene that I that I share with I, Valerie. I love the last I, I, scene I the last with scene. you too. That's yeah. my. But I don't want to say too much. Well, thank you so much for coming, though. I've, we, it seems like we just run out of time when we have fascinating people here. But this is Casa Valentina. It's at the Pasadena Playhouse. It's running only through April 10th. So get there, and you can go to PasadenaPlayhouse.org for tickets and more information. So thank you once again for coming. And now it's time, while you're sitting here, we have to do a soft pitch because it's KPFK, and we pitch all the time. We do. We do. So a membership, we gently remind you, is only $25. And if we could get just four of you to buy a membership. Just four. four. It's barely an orgy. I know. that's, And then we would get credit and gold stars. So you go to online to www. Do we even say that anymore? Yeah, don't, just KPFK.org. Yeah, don't call the station. You go there. You look for the donate button at the top. You click it, and you become a member of KPFK. And tell them IMRU sent you. And there's a message box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah be sure to say you, you heard it here. Because they did, didn't they? They did. They did. If and hearing if it you now. like hearing guests like this. We brought the stars Robert out and, for you tonight. Oh, the stars. I mean, my God, Valerie. It's You've done so many different crazy roles over the last 40 oh, years. I know. All crazy redheads. It's so but. weird <laughs> that you are so normal. I, it no bothered my mother, acting. who has passed away. She just said, why did they want you to play crazy people all the time? I said, I don't know. Mom. I don't but you know. play a very sweet woman in this play. Yeah, she's not crazy. No. No. So if you want guests <laughs> like this, kpfk.org, become a member at $25. Just four of you. Just four of you. All right. So what's coming up next, Steve? Not uh, next, next, but... After the break, we will be back with Abby's wonderful interview about the Arkansas situation, which the Attorney General of Arkansas has try- is trying to overrule a judge who solidified the Fayetteville anti-discrimination legislation. Fayetteville says, mm-hmm. hey, we can't discriminate against gays. A judge upheld that. And the Attorney General said, like, well, that don't seem right. We got to get rid of that. So they are trying to pass a rule where cities cannot have anti discriminations that are better than the state. We can always rely on the South and Texas for this sort of thing. Also, we have Hunter Lee Hughes and Rex Lee from Guys Reading Poems. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Edward Carpenter, England's charismatic visionary, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Carpenter was born in Brighton, England in 1844. He later attended Cambridge. Upon receiving a copy of Walt Whitman's book of poems, Leaves of Grass, his life was changed. He said, quote, I would and must somehow go and make my life with the mass of the people and the manual workers. Thus his legacy to the socialist and cooperative movements began. But it was his writings on homosexuality that made him unique. In 1908, he wrote The Intermediate Sex, the first book of its kind in England. It gave information, hope, and support for gays. Some even considered his books their lifeline. His works are credited with inspiring many authors and activists that followed him. Carpenter shared his life with George Merritt for nearly 40 years. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John Klein. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles.
98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Well, Abby is not here tonight. No, Abby is not here tonight because there was a skiing emergency, by which I mean she just had to go ski right now. You know, she's having mm-hmm. fun. But at least we're warm in here. Yes, we are. It's actually kind of hot after that last interview. I know. They were so fun. But Abby left a present, a report on one of the several attempts in the South to roll back LGBT progress, this time in Arkansas. The newest front in the fight for LGBT rights might be almost where it began, with LGBT rights opponents finding ways to stop local and city anti-discrimination ordinances. Last week, we learned that legislators in North Carolina went into emergency session to pass a statewide law that prevents local governments from enacting laws that protect the rights of people based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Just this week in Arkansas, the attorney general there filed a challenge to the city of Fayetteville's voter-approved anti-discrimination ordinance. She said the local law violates a state law enacted last year that, like North Carolina, prohibits local governments from extending civil rights protections beyond those offered by the state. And of course, Arkansas does not offer protections based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Via Skype, I got to talk to one Arkansas resident who has been fighting back. I'm the Reverend Gwen Fry, and I am an Episcopal priest in the Diocese of Arkansas. I've been a priest for 25 years and recently transitioned from male to female. And in that process, I lost my position in the church that I was working in. So you really understand firsthand the implications of LGBT protections. Absolutely. So since the state ban... Act 137 was passed, a number of cities in Arkansas have passed LGBT civil rights ordinances, almost like they're saying, bring it on. What do you think this says right now about the people of Arkansas and LGBT rights? This is a a huge battleground here in the state. And one of the things that it says, especially about Fayetteville and in some of the other cities that have passed ordinances, is that there are progressive pockets here in Arkansas, especially in Fayetteville, where the University of Arkansas is located. And it shows that there is some progress here in moving towards justice for for all people. Last year was kind of a big year for state legislators around going after LGBT rights because you also passed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was one of the most expansive, although Mississippi might have you beat this week. Yes, indeed. With that particular act, it's better than the original legislation that went to the governor's office. Instead of three steps back, it's only two. So we kind of claimed that as a small moral victory and showing just how much say and power that we have. Act 137 also goes by the name. I love this. The Interstate Commerce Improvement Act, which just on its face seems so unremarkable. And the act itself doesn't mention religious liberty. It doesn't even mention LGBT people. And its stated purpose is to create uniformity of law so businesses won't be confused about what they're supposed to do, I suppose. Do you think there's any validity to that? 
None whatsoever. And it was a slick way to get the legislation passed, actually. One of the things with Act 137 is even though it legislates that no municipalities or counties can pass any NDOs, it in and of itself is unconstitutional. Right. The legislature passed a law that protects LGBT folks against bullying. So we are already a protected class in the state. The attorney general really doesn't have a leg to stand on. So we are looking forward to her appeal. Act 137 prohibits cities and local governments from passing laws that extend protections to people beyond what state law provides. And I'm guessing that they forgot when they did this about the anti-bullying legislation or didn't think anybody would notice that there is, like you said, already state protection. And I know that the city attorney of Little Rock came out and said, oh, well, yeah, we can pass an anti-discrimination ordinance because there is protection for LGBT people in Mm -hmm. Arkansas. What do you think is happening behind closed doors? Because I'm sure they didn't plan on this. I think some of the folks who really pushed this legislation at the state level really did not expect this loophole to appear. And they didn't do their homework. And this is allowing us to fight back and using the Constitution, the rule of law in our favor. Shortly after Act 137 passed, as we were talking Arkansas also passed one of the most sweeping religious freedom restoration acts on record. You said it was even worse when it started. But people have said that Arkansas is now, because of these laws, one of the most anti-LGBT states in the country. Do you think that's true? Yes, I do, because we're in the South and we're in the Bible Belt. It's a difficult place to live for the LGBT community here. There are a few pockets of progressive life here in the state. Little Rock and Fayetteville and also Eureka Springs are really more open and accepting than other places in the state. As a trans woman, I will not go to certain areas of town or definitely will not travel alone if I'm driving across state or things like that. Here in the state, Southern Baptists in particular, Church of God, Assemblies of God, some of those traditions are really scared of some of the changes that are being made and improvements that are happening for all people here in the state and across the country. To a well-meaning person of faith, and I'm actually thinking, for example, of my in-laws who are from a rural community and good people who love my partner and me and have been very embracing, I could see that if you explained what a religious freedom law was to them, they would say this is common sense. They would have a hard time seeing how damaging it could be. I think everybody's religious freedom is very important. I also think that an individual's religious freedom ends at the tip of their nose. Through having those conversations and Discussing with people that while they have the freedom to believe what they believe and practice the religion that they practice, we in America all have that same freedom. We have the freedom to be whatever religious tradition we wish to be, or we have that freedom to not be religious whatsoever. And because that is the America that we live in, they have to respect that. It really goes back to our founding fathers. Have these laws, do you think, led to an increase in violent actions or are people more afraid, do you think? Yes, they are. And especially in the trans community, although it's true for the entire LGBT community, folks stay hidden, especially 
in the more rural areas. They make pilgrimages, if you will, to places like Eureka Springs and Fayetteville and Little Rock, just so they can find places where they can express their true selves and be themselves. Do you think some of the anti-LGBT rhetoric has kind of backfired in a way and that people are motivated to take a stand, maybe even just on their street, people who wouldn't otherwise have done that? Yeah, I really do think that when we look back on these events in the future, we will see that this legislation and whatnot really was the tipping point for folks really coming to an understanding of how oppressive life is for the LGBT community. And one of the things that I really think is happening, those folks who aren't touched by family members or friends or co-workers who are LGBT, like you said, you know, folks on the street, all of a sudden they're recognizing the fact and seeing that the LGBT community is filled with just common real people who want to get along in everyday life and live their lives just like they would as straight cis folks. This is Abby Dees, and I've been talking with the Reverend Gwen Fry about Arkansas's Act 137 and the fight for LGBT equality in her state. And we'll have more with Reverend Gwen Fry. I think next week Abby did a lot more interview with her about her transition And she was actually a pastor of a church there that had been transgender affirming. And yet when the pastor transitioned, they were a lot less so. Thank goodness for Abby. She's the smart one around here. But she likes to ski. I know. She does like to ski, so she's not here this week. But we have people that are here that are even more exciting to me. Who are these dashing fellows sitting in front of me, Steve? I think we have Hunter Lee Hughes, who is the writer, director, producer, and one of the actors in a movie called Guys Reading Poems, which I think is like a Michael Bay film, right? Oh, yeah, that it's very much says so. Michael Bay to yeah, me. exactly. And Rex Lee, who we all love and everything, you've done a lot of comedy, uh, most notably Entourage. Yes, Entourage, thank you. And now you have a new show on Freeform. Right, Young and Hungry. Wednesday nights. Are you young and hungry? Because they're foodies, right? Uh, Yes, foodies. I'm always hungry. That's (laughs) why I have this belly to show for it. Well, Hunter, what is Guys Reading Poems about? Guys Reading Poems is a story about the loss of innocence and the discovery of creative power. And how that plays out in the plot is that there's a disturbed avant-garde painter played by Patricia Velasquez and her younger sort of Lothario husband leaves her uh, with a seven-year-old boy and she can't handle that situation. And so she, she locks him in a puppet box in their artist loft in Los Angeles and then builds an art installation around that box. And he has to turn to poetry and his imagination and creativity to survive that situation. So that's a little recap. And, you know, that sounds like a very straightforward film, but you've taken a lot of experimental chances with this film as well. It's in black and white. Talk about that. Yeah, it's in uh, black and white. In fact, we uh, believe we're the first film to have shot on the Red Epic Monochrome, which is Red's new black and white only camera. It was used for the suit and tie music video that Justin Timberlake did. So uh, by Michael Marius Pessa, who also uh, was a cinematographer on the great black and white James Dean film, Joshua Tree, 1951, which uh, won an award at Outfest a couple years ago. So we definitely, I was going for that kind of 1950s aesthetics with the cast, with the look of 
the film. And so we went down that road, and shortly after we started down that road, it was obvious to me that the film needed to be in black and white, and then it was just a matter of you know executing that as well as we could. And it's mostly in poetry. Yeah, we used 32 poems to basically, uh, as a framing device for the for the film. So you sort of see the story of this family unfolding uh, in between uh, these sort of imaginative interpretations of poems. But I, I like to think of the poems as kind of like puzzle pieces for the story along with the story that's going on with the family. And so if you're sort of patient in watching it by the end <coughs> of the film, all those puzzle pieces come together and the poetry and the story that you're seeing playing out with the family come together and hopefully make some kind of sense. And I love the film. I'm very easily bored. Oh, good. But I was like, okay, it's over? It just flew by. It was great. Well, no, Rex, I, I'm curious as an actor, when, when they came to you and said, we're thinking about doing a movie, but it's, it's going to be all poetry. Did you go, yay? Or did you go, <laughs> let me check my date book? <laughs> Well, I think what Hunter didn't mention is that he he created a short film first, and that was the guys reading poems. So I saw that, and then the story he just told you about the the artist mother locking her child in the puppet box, that was something he created later to frame the poems. Uh, so by that time... I I knew what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. I I've been friends with Hunter for 18 years. <coughs> I I know and respect his talent and we've been wanting to work together for a long time. And so when he said be in my film, it was a no-brainer. I mm-hmm. I jumped at the opportunity. Is this your first film besides the short? Uh well, I the short film I uh Winner Takes All, I wrote and produced, but I did not direct. But I did direct uh an internet television series called Dumbass Filmmakers. That this is my first feature film that I've directed. Oh, I've seen that on the internet. Yeah. 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 So what inspired this? Well, uh Years ago, uh, after my grandmother passed away, as, as sometimes happens, my brother and my mother and I were kind of going through her house, and you know, each of us was taking different things in her house that meant something to us. And I decided to take this collection of books of poems that she had, you know, acquired over the years, just as a reader. She wasn't a poet herself, to my knowledge. But um, so then, years after that, I started reading them and. I realized that it wasn't just the joy of reading the poems that she had herself read, but they were also sort of like clues to who she was because she had marked certain poems. She had starred certain titles. She had underlined certain phrases in certain poems and even written notes in the margin about this poem reminds me of my friend Jenny. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, who is Jenny? Who is this other person that was in my grandmother's life? And uh, so I realized that my grandmother express some of the emotion in her life and events of her life through reading these uh, poems. And I became fascinated with the idea that poetry could be sort of puzzle pieces or clues to someone's life. And my passion's always been cinema. And kind of as a tribute to my grandmother, I kind of wanted to combine my passion with hers. So this was a very personal film for you. Yeah. uh, Certainly that inspiration was personal. I didn't... um, I, I I thought it was just sort of like an experiment with poetry and cinema at first, but then the film became, I realized later on that the film was more personal than I'd realized, you know, that type of a thing. Um, I was just curious, um, since you're both actors in the film, because it's shot in such a, a rich, luscious version of black and white, did you look at the monitor and, and were you conscious of the fact that, ooh, this isn't like 
being on TV or something. This is like the black and white film version of me. And did you did you like play that up at all, or did you just do it and it, it's in black and white? <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> I'm I'm at this weird moment in my life where I don't ever like the way I look on screen. I was hoping that the black and white would help, and it did a little bit. But uh, oh, yeah. everybody looks great. I mean, there are so <laughs> many handsome people in this movie, and, oh, and it's, it's got that movie idol lighting and movie idol hair. And I, I just thought y'all looked terrific. I just wondered if you were conscious oh, of yeah. it. And, I, I, and you guys saw this film, so you can back me up mm-hmm. on this. But as Rex's friend, and I, I've happened to have seen Rex pretty much. I want to say I've seen Rex's body of work as an actor. I'm sure there's one or two I probably missed, but from the theater days to his TV work and independent film work. But one thing I love about Rex in Guys Reading Poems is I just feel like the character that he plays in Guys Reading Poems is a a departure for him. And I think it will surprise people uh, just some of the... um, Because he plays the investor uh, who's the family is kind of trying to use him to figure out a way to get out of L.A. And, and I feel like there's a certain, um, uh, I don't know, just a certain tone to his character that's a new flavor that then we've then people have seen from him that I've known he's had for a long time. And so that was, whether it's about being in black and white or not, that was one of the rewards of making guys reading poems, of feeling like I captured a different side of my friend than sometimes he's seen as. Well, know? we have to ask about the casting because this was an amazingly large cast of truly talented actors, truly beautiful actors, or maybe that's just the way they photograph. No, they pretty much are beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> but now we were talking the night that Steve and I went to the screening about um, the young woman in the film, Lydia Hurst. Yes. And how she photographs remarkably well in black and white because she's just got that kind of period face. I mean, do you really think there's such a thing as a black and white period face? Or I think some people photograph better in black and white than color. Lydia photographs well and everything because she's extraordinarily striking. But there is something about Lydia's look that it it feels so natural for her to belong in a black and white film. And I know our cinematographer, Michael Marius Pessa, said of her that she's one of the very rare actresses that, that looks even better in harder lighting than softer lighting because her features are so good and, and she's... You know, she's got such uh, beautiful cheekbones, and it just all works in black and white. And I, I, what I get from Lydia's performance is that she has this iconic 1950s glamour in the film, and yet her character has a core kindness that some of those types of characters didn't always have in those types of films in the 50s. And it's really a nice contrast, and I think she's one of the people that you walk away from the film going... Wow, Lydia Hurst, what else is, what is she doing next? What's, because it's a really exciting and, and uh, I think quite deep performance. What you is know? she doing next, <laughs> now that you mention it? Well, I know she's on a TV show called South of Hell. Uh, I uh, think that's airing now, and then I know she's 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 like constantly working. She did something called Stealing Chanel, another independent film that she was the lead of, and I believe she won an award at a film festival for uh, that film. And then there's one called I think The Downside of Bliss, another mm-hmm. independent film. She's what is so great about Lydia is that she is um, she does things from from the little I know of her. She really she 
she picks projects because she believes in them. And so she takes a lot of chances with her roles. And so I, I think that if a script is interesting and it's compelling to her, that she does it. And so she, consequently, she's got these like five or six independent mm-hmm. films that are in various stages of coming out. Your lead actor has become huge since you filmed this. Yeah, we we even when we were filming it, we just knew that we had a movie star on our hands with Alexander Draymond. Um, he had been in American Horror Story. He had been in uh, Christopher and His Kind, I believe. Yeah, it was a biopic of uh, Christopher Isherwood that the but BBC produced. But then he did something huge on one of the Yeah, networks. I think like three or four weeks after he shot Guys Reading Poems, he booked the lead of uh, the BBC America series, The Last Kingdom, and he, playing a very different kind of guy than he plays in Guys Reading Poems. Uh, that's You asked about my casting. And that's yeah. another thing. I love to... I love to cast people that I know and think are brilliant, but also try to find an aspect of them as an actor that hasn't been seen before. So, for example, Alexander in American Horror Story, you know, he played kind of the the very attractive boy next door who, you know, had a crush on Jamie Brewer's character. And in The Last Kingdom, you know, he, he plays a real, like, rough and tough warrior guy who's, you know, descent, you know. But in this movie... He plays a father. He plays a young father who has an incredible bond with his son. And I think Alexander is so brilliant in the role. And I remember him saying to me, like, I feel like my main task in this uh, shoot is I just want to spend time with Luke. I just want to get to know the young man playing my son. And they would hang out with each other on the breaks. And and he would do Star Wars games with Luke and stuff like that. And I feel like you see in guys reading poems that, wow, this father aspect of Alexander that we haven't seen before. And I, I think their bond is w- one of my favorite parts of the film. Well, speaking of the other matinee idol here in the room with us, <laughs> <laughs> what was, Rex, what was your takeaway? What did you learn from doing this project? I was incredibly sick when we worked. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, what I learned was that I have reserves of strength that, had prior to that been untapped, I, I learned that you just push through. It's whatever. It's the film version of The Show Must Go On. I, I learned that you still got to try. You still got to try to do your best even when you just want to go home and curl up in a ball. Um, that's all I'm going to say. It was, it was, I don't know. <laughs> it was an interesting experience. I had fun. So what's going on with the project right now? Well, we're actually world premiering the film in at the Palm Beach International Film Festival this Sunday. So I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow to do that, and then uh, Palm Beach, not Palm, Palm Springs, Beach, Palm, so Beach. Palm Beach, Palm Beach, Florida. Going to our, our state, Florida. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Florida. And so then we'll do um, the plan right now is to do some more festivals uh, throughout the year, and then we hope uh, we're premiering. Obviously, April is National Poetry Month, which is uh, a big reason why we think it's so great that we're premiering on Sunday. So we plan to p- play festivals for about the next year, and then um, hopefully we'll uh, get a theatrical release for next National Poetry Month, next April. Amazing. And we do have to mention that one of our own, Steve Rains, who's coming back to the show, has been out for a while because he's so damn busy. Yeah. But he participated in this. Yeah, he has two poems in the film, including... The closing poem, um, Recipe Box, which is just one of the poem, my, one of the favorite poems I've ever read. And so it, it's a very powerful ending to the movie. And 
you know, he, he's a brilliant, brilliant and guy. And is he not the poet laureate of West Hollywood? Isn't that his like official title? Yes. Yeah. yeah. See, I would see if you hadn't told me, I thought we were going to play an exciting round of which ones were Stevens, because <laughs> I knew there were a couple in there, and I was watching the film and thinking, was that it? He was like I, on a bus sign too, so the bus oh, yeah. stop near me had his picture. Every time I'd walk up the house, like, oh, there he is. Yep. Oh, he's on banners on the street. He's a big deal. Oh, our friends are big deals. You know, oh, Harrison no. is at the White House tonight. Who? Harrison, our friend Kerry Harrison. Oh, so is he at the White House? I know him yeah. too. Yeah. He, Oh, yeah, like, he lives like one block away oh, from me. Oh, yeah, I, I see him walking now. the dogs oh, every now and then. <laughs> well, for more information on this, where can we go? Is there a website? Guysreadingpoems.com or our Facebook page. So you can just go to Facebook and look up Guys Reading Poems. And what's the plan after the premiere? I mean, is it going to be a cable release or something, a DVD? or? Uh, I think after our festival run for the, about the next year, then we'll uh, – We'll have some kind of a, a, a release on VOD mm-hmm. and probably DVD as well. I and just don't know all the details of that one yet. One thing I, I always ask, which is stupid, is what's next? Because right now you're so concentrated on this film. There's still a lot to do. But do you have another project in the works? I do. I do. My manager insisted I finish my next script before we go to Palm Beach. It's <laughs> called Inside Out, Outside In. It's a, I call it a reincarnation romantic drama about a gay experimental theater director and his straight leading man who realize they were soulmates in a previous life and are now incarnated in bodies that are not compatible. So is does Rex play the straight guy or the... <laughs> I have a role in that film, but it's not either of those people. Well, thank you all for being here. Do you I was going to ask, how old are you thinking for the casting director? <laughs> 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 thank you, guys. We need to... Do a soft pitch one more time before we go out here. Totally. A little soft pitch. Just remind everybody that only $25, a mere $25, five $5 bills will get you a year's You're membership. You're doing math out, right in your head? Oh, Abby's not the only one who's smart around here. <laughs> and that will get you a year's membership, KPFK. And if we can just get four of you to go to kpfk.org and hit the donate button. And when you uh, when they ask where you heard it, you say, I am are you. If four of you do that, we get gold stars tonight. Even if one of you does it right now, I'll be happy. I know. Just do it. <laughs> KPFK.org. And because this, this sort of thing, these soft pitches, we're calling them, forestall the... The endless pitch is that we know you love so much. <laughs> the big fun drive. Do exactly. it for poetry. I know. So if you, if you just, you know, just... Gently pick up the phone, call. Not, no, don't call. Just, don't, do not I keep forgetting. Yeah, do not call. Yeah, just go to kpfk.org, donate $25, say you heard it from us. We ask so little, and we provide so much. We do. We had stage stars. Now we have film stars. And this is just one show. We and do this for you star, every week. Yeah. That's right, a TV star. So we do this for you every week. So just $25. Well, that's the end of our ride. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride. You're welcome. Well, thank you <laughs> again, then. Our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our board op, Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out. That's the wrong page. <laughs> yes, well, it is. I just revealed this is scripted, didn't I? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, Steve. We're going to close with a song from North Hollywood singer-songwriter Brendan Oh, God, I can't remember how I say his name now. Shay? Shay. Shay. S-K-E-I-E. Yeah. Anyway, that's not important. It's called, (laughs) it's the acoustic version of his new release called So Bad. Good night. Good night.
does he lip service? I'm okay, I'll deny what's beneath this surface Without you here, I don't know what I'm doing Can't hide my fears, I try but I'm in ruins I could sit and lie to you But what's the point, what's the use? You can see I'm blind for you You break the rules and I'm the fool And die! 